What we're going to think about tonight actually was originally a sermon that I wrote last year, almost a year ago, and then for various schedule reasons, I didn't get to preach it the week that I planned to, and so we just kind of left it on the side, and then later in the year, um, I developed some of the ideas at the end of this lesson uh, more fully in the series that we did over the fall on the already but not yet aspects of salvation. So there are going to be some things tonight that I'm going to mention that you've heard addressed more fully elsewhere in other ways, but I hope that there's enough review that's helpful to you, but also some other material, some new material, or what may be new to many of you, that it will nevertheless be worth our time. Tonight we're going to talk a little bit about the ordo salutis and other ways of thinking about that order of salvation that we traditionally outline kind of in a sequential fashion. And this is where I I need the whiteboard to, to kind of draw some of this out for you. When you're thinking from a reform perspective, kind of traditional Reformed theology, you're thinking about events in the salvation work of God as they're applied to the believer, and you're normally taught to think of those in a sequential way. So you have regeneration, where God, generation, I can't talk in right, where God is making you alive, that's the new birth, he's awakening the person who was dead in sins and trespasses, enabling faith, so that now through faith, God can justify us, And in our justification, our sins are forgiven, and we are accounted as righteous in the sight of God for the sake of Christ, not for anything we have done, but because of what Christ has done. And then flowing out of that justification, or so many people will say, uh, comes our sanctification. And in sanctification, we're actually growing in holiness. We're putting sin to death day after day. We are uh, putting on the virtues of grace and obedience in the Christian life, becoming more and more like Christ. Somewhere in there, we'll also talk about adoption, where the Holy Spirit comes to us uh, as a spirit of adoption, causing us to cry out, Abba, Father, and we receive as members of the family of God the blessings uh, of an inheritance in Christ. And then, of course, you've got glorification, which normally, kind of traditionally, we associate with the end of our lives, right? When we go to be in the presence of God and then are ultimately blessed in the beatific vision. Now this is, you could, you could expand this in several ways. You could add to it, you could revise it. But this is broadly speaking, kind of that order of salvation, that ordo salutis that we think about as Christians and especially as Reformed Christians. Uh, we, put, we put this in a particular way. For example, an Arminian view of the ordo salutis would say that first man believes and then he is born again. But as Reformed Christians, we would say, no, he has to be born again in order to believe. So there'd be some you know, differences there. But generally speaking, this is kind of the outline. But whenever we talk about the Ordo Salutis, we always try to say, this is a logical outline. It is not a temporal one. In other words, we are not giving you a sequence of events. We are simply analyzing those events, and to some extent analyzing them in relation to one another, Right? Because after all, regeneration has to come before glorification. You can't be glorified and then be born again. So, so I, there's, there is some logic to this arrangement, and that logic includes, in some ways, sequence. But the reality is, you are not justified and then sanctified. You're not sanctified and then adopted. And in fact, these blessings, as we saw in the fall, haven't already but not yet fully consummated aspect. All of them. Like we've already been made alive, but we haven't yet been raised by Christ on the last day. We've already been justified, but we haven't yet been fully vindicated in the eyes of the world who all now see you are the children of God, right? We're already being sanctified, but that's still a work in progress. We're not everything that we ought to be, even if we're not everything that we used to be. We have already been adopted, but you know, in Romans chapter 8, Paul associates the adoption and the revealing of the sons of God with Christ's return and and the resurrection of both the believer and the whole world when the world is released from the curse. He's associating those ideas in a way that we often don't. So there's a not yet aspect to that. And glorification as well. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 30, he says, all those whom he called, he justified. All those whom he justified, he glorified. He glorified as a completed act there. In Greek, like it's just looking at the whole event. And so we would translate that as a past tense event. And yet we would say glorification really for, from our standpoint seems to be entirely in the future. But there's already a sense 
in which we are sharing in the glory of God through our relationship to Jesus Christ, okay? So we, we don't want to draw this out and think here is step one, two, three, four, five on the way to glory, right? These, these are not steps that we have to go through and complete each one and check off each one in order to be saved, all right? Now, whenever we make that kind of qualification and say this is a logical, analytical way of thinking about salvation, we're not saying anything bad about it. As far as I'm concerned, the Bible teaches exactly this. You've heard me preach probably two dozen sermons on this very thing. Yes and amen, that's all well and good, but it's not the only way to think about it. It's not the only way that the Bible portrays it. Interestingly, it's not the only way that your Westminster standards portray it. Uh, if you go back in time to earlier sermons that even predate point a lot of you were in this church, uh, we pointed out that the Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, kind of outlines salvation in this way. We have effectual calling and justification and sanctification and adoption and then ultimately glorification in the kind of eschatological perspective of Christ's return and the resurrection of the dead. So it takes kind of a traditional order of salutis approach. The larger catechism organizes everything in terms of union with Christ. And so it doesn't think about it in this kind of sequential fashion, but rather thinks about salvation in a more holistic way where we have union with Christ and we have all of these other blessings and benefits that are flowing out of it, right? We have union with Jesus and then coming off of that, we have all of these different advantages of regeneration and justification, sanctification and adoption and glorification are all connected to that, but it's not really in a sequential way. It's just part of a package. And as part of being united to Jesus, these are the kinds of things that God is doing. It's not a different grace that regenerates you and, and another grace that justifies you and another grace that sanctifies you. It's the same grace. It's just different things that that grace is actually doing in your life. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking so far? This is all just setting up, right? Okay. So uh, I quoted on Sunday from Robert Latham, who is an OPC minister and theologian, uh, wrote a systematic theology several years ago that I find very helpful. He, he addresses this at one part of this theology. Let me, let me share a, a portion of that with you. He says, the Ordo Salutis, which is just Latin for order of salvation, the Ordo Salutis is a theological construction whereby the application of salvation is unfolded in an orderly, analytical manner. There are biblical examples of such an order, and he gives a couple. Confessions, such as the Westminster Confession of Faith, include an order in logical procession, while the larger catechism, questions 65 to 90, identifies it as aspects of union and communion with Christ. In general, the Reformed order runs in a logical rather than temporal fashion, from regeneration and effectual calling, to faith and repentance, justification and adoption, and on to sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. I'm still quoting. There are clear limitations to such patterns. They can miss the redemptive historical dimension of Scripture. A logical conundrum surrounds the relationship between regeneration, faith, and justification. Since justification is only by faith, faith precedes justification. But since faith is the result of regeneration, the latter precedes faith. And I'll explain that in a minute. So we are left to conclude that regeneration precedes justification a result that seemingly undermines justification only by faith, making it depend on a prior work of the Spirit within us. Moreover, a focus on the order can eclipse union with Christ, diverting attention away from Christ to the benefits of Christ. So we're looking at the gifts instead of at the giver. Right? And then last part of the quote. Clearly there are elements present at the start of Christian life. Regeneration, effectual calling, faith, and justification. Other elements are ongoing, such as adoption, sanctification, and perseverance. Further, glorification is only realized in the future. However, to muddy the waters a little, each has past, present, and future dimensions, end quote. Now, I appreciate you bearing with me. I know that's a long quote. I'm not trying to, but I, but I want you to see, we have, I have said all of those things multiple times in the last 
seven years. Okay. But I'm not expecting that you are at home every week memorizing every word of every, I mean, like, that'd be a good way to spend your time is go home and just memorize every word of every sermon. I, no, like, I, I don't do that, right? Because I'm going to change my mind about some things, right? But um, the reality is there's nothing new there. And yet these are, the, these are the kinds of ideas that sometimes you have to hear multiple times before it finally clicks, before you finally begin to understand, oh, I know now why there's a little bit of a question. That, uh, Latham is referring, and I talked about this in the series back in the fall, so you could go back and listen to that again if you want more on it. But Latham talks about the, the challenge, if we're only thinking about this in a logical way, of saying, first, we have regeneration. Then we have justification. But justification is by faith alone. It's through faith alone. And yet, in order for us to believe, we have to be regenerated. The Spirit has to change us in order for us to believe, but the justification isn't based on any change in us. Do you see the problem? Now, Latham is not saying that this order is wrong, and I'm certainly not. I think this is what the Bible teaches. Everyone who believes, John says, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, has been born of God. You can't believe until you've been born. And if you see a believer, you know that they've been born again. And you have to believe in order to be justified. You can't be justified if you don't believe. So this is the right order. But what we're saying is that the order, the sequence, doesn't tell you the whole story. Because the reality is, God is changing you, but he's not basing his pardon of you upon that change. Does that make sense? So he is changing you, but he's not looking at that change and saying, because you've changed, I'm going to forgive your sins. Because I've changed you, I'm going to count you righteous. No. When he counts you as righteous, he's counting you righteous because of Christ. And well, I'm, not, I'm not going to take the time to defend all of that because we've done that a whole lot. If you've got questions about that, come talk to me. But that's the burden of Romans chapter 4. He's counting you righteous because of Jesus, not because of you, but he's also changing you. So I was, I was in, a, um, in a credentials committee meeting not long ago where a young man was being examined. Good man, faithful man, he's going to be a great pastor. And we were asking him, do we, do we believe in imparted or infused righteousness? This is where God actually places righteousness within us to change us morally and personally. He said, no, we don't believe in that. Because he's thinking, well, that's associated with Roman Catholicism. That's associated with Eastern Orthodoxy. That's associated with other, other fer, versions of Christianity. That's not something we believe, except that it's in your Westminster Confession of Faith, except that it's in your larger and shorter catechisms, except it's in your Bible. Of course we believe in imparted righteousness. What we don't believe is that imparted righteousness is the basis of justification. But do you see the difficulty of saying God has already begun making that moral change in you? Do you see that? So this is why we don't need to do away with I'm not arguing that we should do away with that traditional order of salvation. But I think what we need to do is stretch our minds a little bit and remember that there are different ways of drawing this out. There are different ways of thinking about the blessings and benefits that we have in Christ Jesus. And that's what I want us to talk about tonight. We can think about salvation as unfolding in a series of events and experiences. God makes us alive, as we said, so that we're enabled to believe. God forgives our sins, accounts us as righteous for the sake of Christ, adopts us as his children. We're increasingly sanctified, and we are glorified when we depart this life. That's a logical way to think about it. But if we think about the same experiences, the same events, the same blessings of salvation in terms of union with Christ, then you might think of the same blessings in a non-linear, non-sequential, and more holistic way. Think about your relationship with your children or your grandchildren. There are certain blessings and benefits they get from being part of your family. Those blessings are not necessarily in sequential order. And if you place them in sequential order, one of the, one of the mistakes you can make is thinking that this blessing necessitates then this result and then that blessing is based on this early, and, and, and now it's, it's kind of like a, a line of dominoes, right? But that's, but that's not the way that relationships actually work. No, like, you're my children, and so you have these blessings, these benefits. Like, you've got a place to live, and you've got people who love you, and you get food, and, like, you get chores, and you get discipline, and, and things like that. Like, that's all part of the relationship, which is much more organic. 
And so what I'm proposing here is not a correction to the Ordo Salutis or a departure from it in any way, but rather what I want to do tonight is look at that same truth, that same reality from a different vantage point. So we've talked before about so much of theology is this way. When we look at God, we are looking at one thing. We talk about the attributes of God, but that's a bit of a misnomer, right? We have attributes. God's attributes are not like our attributes. We're speaking analogically here. I, I, like, when I was very young, my hair was very blonde, and now my hair is not very blonde. It's, it's brown, and it's, and it's becoming gray, right? I have two arms, but you could cut off one or either of my arms, and I'm, st- I'm still the same person. God doesn't have changeable attributes. It's not as if we could say, well, at the beginning of creation, God was omnipotent, and he was omnipresent, and he was omniscient, and he was holy, and he was sovereign. But now, as he's gotten older, you know, some of those things have changed. No, they haven't. So when we talk about the attributes of God, it's like we're holding a gem up, and we're spinning it. And we're saying, what is God like? Well, looked at from this side, he's holy. Looked at from this side, he is love. Looked at from this side, he is righteous. Looked at from this side, and we go through those attributes, but we're really describing the same thing. It's all one thing. And that's what we're talking about tonight. Salvation, big picture, not just justification, that's one part. Not just sanctification, that's one part. Not just glorification, but we're looking at the whole picture and looking at it from a slightly different vantage point. Through being united to Christ, We are made alive. And having been made alive in relationship with Jesus, we receive a penitent faith and forgiveness and righteousness, both imputed to us and imparted to us, and glorification. And all of that because we are connected to the living righteous one. My righteousness is that I'm connected to Jesus. My spiritual life is that I'm connected to Jesus. Without connection to Jesus, I'm dead. Like, I've I've been unplugged from the power source. I'm dead in Adam. I'm alive because I'm connected to Jesus. So it's not step one, step two, step three from this vantage point. It's more like a kaleidoscope of blessings and benefits flowing out of that union. In other words, you could think about all of these blessings and benefits like the tiles in a mosaic. Right? Think about looking at a mosaic... And you, and you go up close, and you can see the individual tiles and the individual colors and the individual shapes, but you step back, what do you see? You don't see individual tiles, you see this, whatever the image is. And it's beautiful. You look at a stained glass window. You go up close and you see the individual pieces of glass and the various colors and tints and the way that they're arranged, but you step back and you've got an entire image. Well, that's what I'm suggesting uh, that we think about tonight, that salvation can be viewed that way. Now, it can be viewed the other way, right? But that maybe there is some advantage, at times at least, in thinking about salvation like tiles in a mosaic rather than the numbers and fractions and symbols in a math problem, right? And and again, like sometimes you need the math problem, especially when you are hammering out theological disagreements and you've got someone saying, no, 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 you have to believe in order to be born again. And you say, well, let's, let's actually test that idea. Let's put these in sequence and let's test them with various passages. That's where the traditional ordo is going to be really, really helpful. So tonight what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about five blessings that we enjoy in Christ. And they are, they're on your handout. Pardon, peace, power, purpose, and promise. Now, obviously, there are many other blessings that we could identify in Christ. I mean, this is not exhaustive. We could meditate on many other things. But I hope that those five categories are sufficiently large to be fairly comprehensive. In other words, generally speaking, the blessings of grace that we receive through our union with Christ are going to go in one of these categories. We're going to say that's an aspect of our peace, that's an aspect of our pardon, that's an aspect of our our power, our purpose, our promise, right? I'm not trying to put these into their own containers, and this is important. This is the big disclaimer for the, the evening, right? It seems like I always have one for every lesson. We are going to talk about each of these blessings and relate them to specific aspects of the order of salutis. So I, I'm going to talk about pardon and peace and power and purpose and promise, and I'm going to connect them to different aspects of the order of salutis. But what I am not doing is creating a one-for-one identification between them. And and that is going to be really important. 
I am not saying that each of these gifts are associated with one but not the other event in the order. Because remember, I'm suggesting tonight that salvation is one thing. And we're just looking at it from different sides. What I'm doing is associating specific events and blessings, not trying to exclude other connections that could be made. And I'll explain what I mean by this as we go. I, I will mention some other connections, in fact, that we could make as we go along that we won't focus on this evening, but it's very important that you participate in this study as a meditation on union with Christ and not think about what I'm saying just simply in terms of kind of a logical, analytical, sequential sort of ordo salute. Because if you do that, you're going to misunderstand some things. And I'll just tell you right up front. The traditional ordo salutis is good, right, biblical, helpful, all of that. It's complementary to what I'm going to do tonight. It's compatible with everything I'm going to say, but it's not what I'm talking about tonight. And if you try to fit this lesson into that, you are going to misunderstand some things. And if you misunderstand some things, it's, you're going to be the one that's confused. <laughs> and, and you're, you know, you're going to think that I'm saying certain things that I'm not, but, but it's going to be because of that, that mistake, all right? And hopefully that will become clear as we go through. Now, this was originally a lesson that was intended to kind of unpack uh, Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 16. You can look that up. You can read that at home. I'm not going to read any of those questions tonight. Uh, but what I do want to do is start with a passage in Ephesians chapter 1. So I know Dane's taking us through Ephesians right now. This is familiar. But if you'll just go with me to Ephesians 1, I'm going to read these verses um, just to kind of lay out at the outset a biblical basis for what we're going to say. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, beginning at verse 3. You know this doxology well. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also. We have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now what stands out to you in that reading? In him, in Christ, by him, through him, all of this language of union with Christ. But you know what doesn't jump out? Is any kind of a traditional sequence. Right? I mean, like, forgiveness of sins is planted right in the middle of that, right? In verse 7. So it's not as if you've got kind of the traditional ordo outlined there. You've got all of the blessings of the traditional ordo in there. But they're not outlined in kind of that logical, sequential way. They're just all connected to Christ. And it's as if Paul is looking at Jesus and saying, look at everything that we have in him. And he starts enumerating that. Praise God for all of these blessings and benefits. And oh, by the way, did I mention this one, right? So he's not thinking about them in the way that we sometimes typically do. He's just extolling all of these gifts of grace that we find in God's Son. All right, so let's run through these quickly. We've taken half our time with the introduction, all right? Think about, first of all, pardon in the cross of Christ. Now, by the way, I've got a lot of cross-references for you on your study guide, and we are not going to look at most of them tonight. But hopefully, this will be useful to you. You can go home in your devotional time the rest of this week. You can look this up. You can unpack this. You can talk about it. You can email me if you're confused, whatever. Um, pardon in the cross of Christ, all right? The first and most familiar aspect of grace in relation to the cross of Jesus is the forgiveness of sins. I mean, this, like we were doing a, uh, an interview with a covenant child yesterday. What, you know, what's the first thing that we ask them? Like, what did Jesus do for us? And what are they going to say? He died on the cross. 
They don't say he, he raised the dead, he healed the lame, you know, he multiplied the loaves and fish. He did all of those things, and we, we benefit from all of those things. But what do they say? They say he died on the cross. Why did he die on the cross? So that our sins could be forgiven. That is, that is Sunday School 101. That's Miss Kirstie's, you know, youngest kid's class, right? Everybody knows that answer. The Bible is explicit about this. Christ died for our sins, Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. It's there in the original text. He does not say Christ died for sins. That would be true, but it's incomplete. He died for our sins. Or Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he bore in his own body our sins on the tree. He carried not just sin as a concept... Not just this general notion of transgression and lawlessness. He took my sins, all of them, your sins. That's a lot. Like, that's a lot of weight from any one of us. He took all of it. And so he's not just dying, as we've said before, to establish this general blood bank. And then a believer can go and apply for grace whenever he sins. He is carrying your sin to the cross. He is suffering the penalty that we deserve. In fact, this is exactly what Isaiah promised and prophesied the Messiah would accomplish, that he would be wounded for our transgressions. Not just for transgressions. It's, it's a really important difference. This is what we talk about when we talk about definitive atonement, particular redemption. This is the L in tulip, right? Um, there's a definitive offering made for the sins of God's people. It's not just a general offer it's a very specific work. The Bible depicts Christ's sacrifice as an act of penal substitutionary atonement. What does that mean? Penal relates to the law. He is punished according to the law. He receives the penalty that the law demands. The day you eat of it, you will die. Dying, you will die. The wages of sin is death. What happens to Jesus? He is killed. He is killed as a criminal. He is condemned in a court of law, unjustly, to be sure, he hasn't done anything wrong. He has not sinned. He is not guilty, but he takes the penalty of a guilty person. It's a penal offering, but it's also substitutionary. He is dying in our place, on our behalf, for our sakes. And that's what every sacrifice in the Old Testament was doing. I, still, I just can't wrap my mind around the fact that modern theologians will say, really, the Old Testament knows nothing of penal substitutionary atonement. I'm like... What do you think the Old Testament is about? The Old Testament is just literally full of sacrifices ordered by the law that are offered in place of the worshiper. Like you bring your sacrifice, you put your hands on his head, and you slit his throat. And you hold his head as he bleeds out. What is happening there? Penal substitutionary atonement. This is all pointing to Jesus. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, our debt is canceled. Justice is accomplished, and we are vindicated by his sacrifice. Now, what are we going to connect this to? We're going to connect it to our regeneration. I realize this is where you want to say, no, 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 pastor. What you meant to say is our justification, because you've learned your shorter catechism, and that's good. You should, right? So in justification, God pardons our sins. So pardon has to be connected to justification. Well, good news, it is connected to justification. <laughs> but remember, we're not separating this out. We're not thinking about this merely logically or analytically or compartmentalizing these blessings. When Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, what is he enabling? What is he accomplishing? He's bringing about a new humanity. He's dying in the way that Adam was condemned to do, that all of us in Adam were condemned to do, so that what? And I don't want this to sound, don't misunderstand this analogy. When I, I'm not trying to trivialize this, but, but in, a, in a very real way, we're pressing the reset button. God is fulfilling the demands of the covenant that was broken so that the covenant of grace can come to us and with all of its benefits, right? Now, in one sense, people have been receiving the benefits of the covenant of grace for thousands of years before the death of Jesus. But what ultimately secures that? How, on what basis does God forgive Adam's sin? And he does forgive Adam's sin. 
On what basis does he forgive Noah's sin? On what basis does he forgive Abraham's sin? On what basis does he forgive Moses and David and every other sinner in the Old Testament? He forgives them on the basis of whose sacrifice? Christ. So what's happening in the cross and resurrection? A new Genesis. A regeneration. And in fact, that's exactly how the New Testament talks about it. In Romans chapter 6, what does the Apostle Paul say? Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? For we were buried with him by baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. He's talking about death and resurrection. And he's saying this is what Jesus accomplishes. By his death, he takes the old world, he takes the old covenant, he takes the Adamic race into the grave and then back out the other side. And it's a re-creation of the human race. And this is then associated with baptism, as we talked about a little bit on Sunday. Hopefully this will be familiar. Baptism is that sacramental, symbolic connection of a sinner with his crucified and resurrected Lord. That's why the Bible says, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. You say, well, water can't wash away sins. Right. (laughs) Of course. Of course it can't. But what's baptism doing? It's uniting you visibly, sacramentally, to Jesus. No, not everyone who's baptized is united savingly to Jesus, right? No, there are some people who were never baptized, who were nevertheless, by God's grace, united to Jesus. We're not suggesting that there is is an inseparable connection here. But there's a connection, folks, like the New Testament talks about it. What's happening in baptism? I am being baptized into his death. I'm being baptized placed on the cross in the tomb coming under judgment but instead of remaining under judgment my sin is washed away my old life is taken away my old man is crucified with Christ and I come out of the waters of baptism as a new creation that's why the Bible refers to it when it talks about the washing of regeneration or salvation or newness of life the baptized person has literally finished one life and begun a new one. And that new life is one of covenantal commitment to God. And this is one of the reasons we need to baptize our children, young, early, right? So that their whole life, you say, you belong to God. Like, you belong to God. This is your obligation. This is whose family you're in. Now, yes, they're going to have to make their own decision. And yet, some of them may make the wrong decision. But the reality is you have been set apart to God. You are not your own. You have been crucified with Christ. You no longer live. When does that happen visibly? When does that happen symbolically? When does that happen sacramentally? It happens in baptism. Yeah. A second second blessing, peace. We have peace in the cross of Christ, right? Not only are our sins forgiven, we are actually brought into an objective peace with God. So what what is our condition outside of Christ outside of faith, outside of the church, outside of covenant relationship to God, we are God's enemies. We are at war. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. We are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3. But Romans 5 verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we have peace. And now there is a new relationship Our sins have been forgiven, and we are reconciled to God. So we have peace with God in the body of Christ, no matter who we were before. Because we've been baptized into his death, and we've entered into the regeneration. And and by the way, we're we're not denying that that regeneration involves a change of our nature. So again, like, it's really important. You don't mishear what we're saying. We're not denying anything that we normally say about these events and experiences of grace But what we're trying to do is step back and see even a bigger picture. We have entered into the new generation, to the new genesis, to the new humanity. And in that relationship, we're no longer dead in Adam. We have peace with God. This is the second half of Romans chapter 5. You, every person, every person, I don't care who they are, where they're from, what their religious affiliation is, every person is in a covenant relationship with God. But some people are in a broken covenantal relationship with him. Like some people are in Adam, and they are lost. It's not a question of whether you are in covenant relationship with God. 
It's a question of whether you are in Adam or you are in Christ. Whether Adam is your covenant head or whether Christ is your covenant head. And there are two humanities. There are two covenants. And you are relating to God by one or the other. As the Lord says in Hosea chapter 6, like Adam and different, you know, different scholars, different interpreters, they'll say, well, what he means there is like man or like they did at the place Adam. I think he's talking about Adam in the garden, right? Like Eve's husband. Like Adam, we broke the covenant. Adam broke a covenant, and we've continued to break that covenant until we are reconciled to God in Christ. The peace that Christ creates by his sacrifice is objective and covenantal. It is not subjective, and it is certainly not private. Now, what are, we, what are we saying there? I'm not denying that there is a personal aspect to that. Sure, there is. And this is where your assurance of, of grace, your assurance of pardon comes in to play. You have assurance of grace insofar as you appropriate the personal implications of an objective work of peacemaking. Okay? So, so some, you know, some of us are, are like the Japanese soldiers that were periodically found you know, on the, on the islands after World War II, years after the end of the war, and they think we're still at war. Right? Like, as far as we know, we're, we're still at war. It's like the war's been over for quite some time. And so that's some Christians. Like, you, you think you're still at war with God when there has been an objective act of peacemaking. Your personal appropriation of peace and assurance and comfort is based upon an external, objective event. Does that make sense? So this is why it really is a mistake to constantly be thinking, well, how do I know if I'm elect? How do I know if I'm regenerate? What if I'm a hypocrite? Well, you know, what, what, but who are you looking at in all of that? You are looking at you. You're looking at you. And there is a place for introspection. There's a place for self-examination. But that's not the place you find your assurance. You find your assurance by looking outside of yourself. You find your assurance by looking at Christ and at objective promises, objective accomplishments of grace. So what are we going to connect with this? We're going to connect justification. Now, again, we're not trying to disconnect justification from pardon. Please don't, please don't think that's what I'm saying. We're, what we're trying to do is say, look at how all of these blessings are connected. Look at how all of these blessings are connected. Westminster Shorter Catechism 33, justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, and received by faith alone. And what do you notice about that? Justification is not about your personal condition. It's about your standing before the law. So the criminal goes into the courtroom, and he has committed the murder. He has done the crime. And whether by good attorneys or whatever, right, he hears the verdict, not guilty. And he walks out of the courtroom a free man. He, is, he has been justified. Now, in that case, it might be an injustice because he did the crime. But it's not about his personal condition. It's about his standing before the law. That's what justification is about. It's about a peace that is outside of you. It's about a righteousness that is outside of you. That's why we say justification is not based upon that prior work of grace in you. But there is a prior work of grace in you. <laughs> God's brought you into the regeneration. He's begun changing your nature. He's begun changing your heart. He's given you faith. But that's not why he's justifying you. He's justifying you because of Jesus, because of what Jesus did. The ungodly, that's you and me, are declared righteous because of what Christ has done. And so this is where we make the distinction between our status and our state. Our status is our, is our, our standing before the law. Our state is how we're doing personally, morally. And if you go into the courtroom and you have not committed the crime, but you hear the verdict guilty, guess what? Your state is, is a state of innocence, but your status is as a condemned person. But see, in this case, we were the ones who personally actually were and are guilty of the crime. And yet what has God done? He's given us the status of not guilty. He's justified us by an objective external act of peace. We're not justified apart from Christ. Do you understand this? Justification is its not one of the advantages of thinking in the way that we're suggesting tonight. Again, not to deny or take away from 
a more traditional kind of analytical model. But one of the advantages is you don't think of justification like something you get in the mail. Right? Where, well, I've, I've believed in Jesus and now it's like almost a trade with God. I'm connected to Jesus. Jesus is the righteous one. Therefore, I can't be condemned. It, I no longer have to take the, the daisy out and, you know, say, he loves me, he loves me not. Right? And today he doesn't love me because I'm a weak, wretched sinner. But tomorrow I'm going to do so well I'm going to be sure God loves me because I'm such a, I'm such a good Christian. Right? I mean, that's, just, that's a really bad approach to figuring out where you stand with God. No, in this case, I am. Con of course God loves me because he loves Jesus. And Jesus is the head, and I'm a member of his body. I'm connected to Jesus. I am connected to him, and therefore, I mean, we're, we're not going to say that the head is righteous and the body is not. The Father's not going to cut the body off of the head. The head is righteous, and therefore the body is as well. We are accounted righteous, not because we are personally, but because he is. His righteousness is our own. This is what the Bible says over and over and over again. Again, you've got a lot of cross-references here. I'm trusting that most of you are familiar with that. And maybe that's, maybe I shouldn't assume that, but for the sake of time, we're going to have to assume it tonight. Paul talks in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, about desiring a righteousness that is not my own, that does not come from keeping the law, but is the righteousness of God received through faith. That's an external righteousness that's the basis of my peace. Do you see that? We're counted as law keepers by God in our union with Jesus, who is the justified one. And I don't have time to develop this tonight, but, but you do need to, to realize Jesus has gone through that ordo salutis for you. But this is what he's doing in his work of salvation. You say, well, Jesus doesn't have to do that because he's not a sinner. Right. But in order for you to receive those blessings and benefits, he had to secure all of that. And so where is Jesus justified? Just, this is participatory, you can an answer this. Where is Jesus justified? Well, in one sense, but, but technically, no. In redemptive history, where is he justified? Not at the cross. At the cross, he's a condemned criminal. He dies as an offender. Resurrection. Resurrection. Vindicated by the resurrection, and declared to be the Son of God. Now, the Father says that at his baptism. It's already true. This, this is another thing. So we think of justification as, as just that, that event at a moment in time where I was a damned sinner on this side of it, and now I'm a forgiven, loved child of God on this side. Of it. And that's true. That's how we experience it. But Jesus has always been righteous, and he dies as a criminal. When is his justification? When before the face of the entire universe, the father draws his son out of the grave and says, he's mine. He's the righteous one. Death can't hold him. Remember Peter saying that on Pentecost? It's impossible for death to hold him. Why? Because he's the righteous one. He's the son of God. Death has no claim on him. That's the public vindication of Christ. We'll develop that. At, I mean, Easter's coming up. We can talk about that then. All right. Number three. I've got like eight minutes to do three more. Power, power in the cross of Christ, all right? The cross of Christ not only saves us from condemnation, it delivers us from sin's power. He did not die to leave us under the power of the flesh. He died to change us. This is another concern that I have in the way, not with the traditional order of salutes, but in the way that some people use it, right? Is that we, it, we, we kind of prioritize justification in a way that almost makes it the sum of salvation. But it's not the sum of salvation. It's, it's a critical part. Like we don't have salvation without justification. But that's not all of salvation. It, 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 it's, if we're thinking about this logically, sequentially, we get to justification, we think, okay, I'm good. My sins are forgiven. I'm counted as righteous. I, like, I can check out here. I can set my cruise control. What about sanctification? Well, sanctification is good. It's necessary. But, you know, I mean, we're a hot mess. We're not going to make that much progress. I mean, after all, that's what the Heidelberg says. You know, even those who make the most progress, even the holiest people in this life, have only a small beginning, which is true. And so that kind of traditional logical order, we get to justification, we feel like, okay, I've, I've got salvation, I'm, I've accomplished that, and, and there's a sense in which we're done. Whereas when I'm thinking about union with Christ, and I'm realizing that the whole plan and purpose, the intent, the goal of salvation is to make me like Jesus. Well, justification's awesome. Thank God for justification. 
But, that, but that's, not the, that's not the whole story. That's kind of the beginning of the story, right? Christ's sacrifice for us enables us to become acceptable sacrifices. I mean, what does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 5 that we're going to get to soon in, in Dane's class, right? Imitate God. Im, Im, imitate God. Imitate God. How do you do that? By living in Christ. Because otherwise you can't do that. We are sacrificing. Present your bodies a, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The cross is both the power and the paradigm for the Christian life. We're going to come to this again in just a second, but think about that verse I quoted a few minutes ago, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. That's the paradigm. Jesus' death, Jesus' cross, has not only secured my pardon, it's not only given me peace by an objective external work of righteousness, it's also given me power to be a completely different person. Not in my own strength, but in Christ's strength mediated to me through the Holy Spirit. And so all through the New Testament, the apostles tell us to take up our cross. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Take up the cross. Put to death that which is earthly in you. Kill sin. Kill self. And live for God. How do you do that? By following the way of the cross. Because the cross is total commitment. It's total war on the flesh. Uh, again, I think I mentioned this. I don't remember if I mentioned this in a sermon or a Sunday school. or I've mentioned it to you recently somewhere. Um, I think it was in Sunday school. I, was, I you know, had a moment last week, a couple weeks ago, where there was a particular temptation that was confronting me, and I suddenly realized with this astonishing clarity, this is Apollyon standing in the path. That, that, for me, that was helpful in that moment because I thought that really kind of simplifies it, right? He dies or I die. Okay. I'm all right with that. Like, he dies or I die. But that's not how I think about temptation most of the time. Like, most of the time, I'm like negotiating. Like, maybe I'll just ignore him. Like, you know, he's not taking up a lot of room. You know, he's just sitting sit in the corner quietly, right? He's okay. He's not bothering me. I won't bother him. No, like if Apollyon is coming through my daughter's bedroom window, he's going to die. But that's what sin is doing all the time. It's coming through my window. And so John Owen says, be killing your sin or sin will be killing you. It's the cross that teaches us that lesson. So while justification is about our status before the law, sanctification is about our state. It's about taking the ungodly and making them godly. And this is where... Again, if you're a good Reformed Christian and somebody asks you, do you believe in imparted or infused righteousness, you need to say, yes, I do, both, firmly, enthusiastically. I am not justified by an imparted righteousness. I'm justified on the basis of an imputed righteousness, a righteousness that is counted as my own even though it's not mine personally. It's Jesus's. But I am sanctified through the impartation of grace and righteousness that is making me someone that I was not. Amen. Like, I, I don't want to be who I am, naturally. I want to be like Jesus. So we're being transformed. And that is personal, that is internal, that is moral. The gospel is not merely about a legal adjudication regarding our guilt. I would say it's not even primarily about that. I would base that on Ephesians 3 and several other passages that we could unpack it another time when we have more time. But the Lord is building an everlasting kingdom and a holy temple in which to dwell. And he, he's making you part of that temple. He's fitting you into that temple. And so he doesn't, he doesn't want, you know, bricks that are shapeless and covered with black mold and, you know, crumbling on all the edges and say, but we're, gonna just, we're just going to say that those bricks are good enough because the cornerstone is good. He's, he's going to bring those bricks in, and he's going to clean them up, and he's going to shore them up, and he's going to shape them up, and it's all by the same power. It's all by the same grace. Again, what did I say earlier? It's not one grace doing regeneration, another grace doing justification, another grace doing sanctification. It's all the same grace, and it's all through our union with Christ. God's will is not for you simply to rest in your justification. God's will for you, the Bible says over and over, is to be holy and obedient. And yes, we should say, I can't do that on my own. Right. <laughs> Indeed. No kidding. This is why we're united to Jesus. But we're not united to Jesus just so that we can say, rest in your justification. We're united to Jesus so that we can go to war on Apollyon. Yes. Okay? 
Number four, I'm going to have to go over just a little bit, but just I appreciate your patience. Um, purpose in the cross of Christ. Believers live a cruciform life. Now, you've probably heard that term before. You may or may not know what it means. It just means cross-shaped. Right? It's shaped like the cross. The cross is the paradigm for our existence. That needs to be a series of sermons maybe this year or next year. Right? The cross is continually telling us that we are not our own, but we belong to our Savior, that we were bought with the blood of the Lamb, and that we are made for more than what sin in this world offers. That's what the cross is telling you. The doctrine of sanctification, we've said many times, involves knowing who you are in Christ and acting like it, but knowing who you are requires you to know whose you are. I know who I am because I know whose I am. Because if you identify yourself, if you define your identity apart from Christ, outside of God's household, then you're the bad guy in the story. You're you're the villain. And now you'll know who you are. It's not who you want to be. The only way to properly know yourself is to know whose you are, to know that you belong to God in Christ. So here, I want you to think for just a minute, when we're thinking about this purpose, think about that blessing of adoption into the family of God. Salvation cannot be reduced to a sequential list of experiential blessings. Now, I'm not denying that that list of blessings is all true. Yes and amen. There's a logic to them. There's an order to them, yes and amen. But, but you can't just draw those out, you know, bullet points or numbering them and say, okay, I, I've, I've kind of got my hands all the way around the gospel. No, like the gospel is as big as Christ is. The blessings of salvation are as big as our triune God. You cannot put your arms all the way around that. So we don't want to think reductionistically. We want to think expansively about this. Because these blessings, as we read in Ephesians 1, don't remain in silos. They don't come in separate sealed packages. They all come together. It's all part of the relationship, right? It's just like in marriage. Everything that I am and have is yours. Everything that you are and have is mine. And there's a lot to that. The legal and the relational are all wrapped around each other because we receive grace organically in Christ. And I think what What some people want to do is they want to kind of compartmentalize these blessings and say, these are legal and these are uh, organic or personal or familial. And what I would just suggest is that, yeah, there are certain blessings that have a more legal or maybe a more familial aspect to them, but, but none of them are one without the other. So think about adoption for a second. Is adoption a legal event or a familial event? It's both. And it can't be one without the other. I mean, you, you have the courtroom where the judge says, like some of you got to do this. I remember going, you know, with, when we adopted my sister and we go and the judge says, like, she's part of your family now. Like, okay, there's that legal aspect, but then there's the living room, right? She's got a bedroom in our house. She's got, she's got chores. She's got a seat at the, the dinner table. You can't parse that out. And, and I realize we think about justification, for example. This is where it normally comes up. And people say that's a legal, that's a forensic blessing. Yes and amen. Yes and amen. But how do I get that blessing? By being united to Jesus. It's not just by you know, ordering it from Amazon. And I give you money and you give me the product that I want. It's an organic relationship that brings legal blessings to me. right? And all of grace is like that. The legal and the personal are united in faith and in baptism so that we become God's heirs. And this is where I would just point you to Galatians 3. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I love those four verses because like, you cannot... If you're trying to draw the threads out and say this is legal and this is familial, and th- you, you can't do it. Like, it's all woven together. It's so tightly knit. There's an organic unity to that, that that you can't separate it out. And then finally, promise. We have promise in the cross of Christ. If you have a cross-centered theology, it has to include resurrection. You cannot have the crucifixion of Jesus without the resurrection. If you have crucifixion without resurrection, you don't have anything, right? 
If Aslan remains dead on the stone table, nothing gets fixed. If Jesus remains in the tomb, nothing changes. We are of all men the most to be pitied. The apostles did not preach the cross without the resurrection. It would not be good news. And I re- we have to be careful here. I don't, I don't think anybody intentionally severs these, but I think our language can almost lead us to that. If, we are only to, if we're thinking, Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's like, right, but what does that mean? It's not just Christ crucified. Like, it's Christ crucified and resurrected. And that, and that changes everything. So yeah, have a cross-centered perspective, a cross-focused proclamation, but you don't have the cross without the tomb. You don't have the cross without the resurrection. You don't have Good Friday. It's, it's not Good Friday if you don't have Easter morning, right? Then it's Bad Friday. It's like the Son of God died and he remained dead, and we thought things were bad before. Now they're ten times worse, right? The glory of the cross presupposes the resurrection of Jesus. Otherwise, the cross is not glorious. It's the greatest tragedy in the history of the world. The reason that we rejoice in the cross is because Jesus is not dead. We do not commemorate the fallen who died to save us. We celebrate the risen one. And that's, and that's part of the, if, you know, if you're here at ROPC, this is one of the things hopefully you noticed pretty early on is that this is the, this is the different orientation we have to, to the Lord's Supper. And by different, I don't mean different than, you know, everybody else, and we're the only ones who figured it out. But a lot of churches, you go to the Lord's Supper, and it's like a wake. You know, I mean, it's like, it's like the, the, the appetizers that you serve when somebody's dead. Right? And we're, we're here, and, it, and it's sad songs. Like, I mean, you could just look at the hymnal. Like, how often do we sing the Lord's Supper hymns out of our hymnal? Some of them are great hymns. They just belong in a different part of the liturgy, right? Every now and then we'll throw one in. But they're, they're all sad songs, you know, because this is a sad thing. It's not a sad thing. There's nothing sad about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is delightful. It's joy. It's the feast. I mean, you want to be sad, be sad at the reading of the law. Be sad at the confession of sin. That's where you're being reminded, I put Jesus on that cross. My sin required his death. By the time I get to the table, man, I'm celebrating It's good news that Jesus died, and he's not dead anymore. There's always a future aspect. There's always a forward-looking hope to our meditation on the cross. So this is where, and I teased it at the end of this lesson, knowing that I wanted that other sermon series, and then you didn't get to hear this lesson, so you had no preparation for it whatsoever. But this is where we get this idea of the already-but-not-yet aspect of the Ordo Salutis, that there is a sense in which every one of these blessings, including glorification, has already come to you, by means of your union with Christ, and there's an aspect in which every one of these blessings, including your regeneration, hasn't fully happened yet, hasn't been fully completed or accomplished. We're already regenerated, but we're not yet resurrected bodily in glorified forms. We're already justified, but we're not yet vindicated before the world as God's obedient sons. We're already adopted, but we've not yet been revealed as such to the world. We're already glorified, but not as we one day will be. Some Christians have an already and no more theology of salvation. And that really is how I would describe a theology, a view of of the gospel that really is limited to justification and the forgiveness of sins. Now, I, I don't want you to think for a second I'm trying to downplay the importance of that. I am not at all, we're not saying not this but that, we're saying this and that. This and also. It's both and, it's not either or. But if you have this kind of salvation is justification, justification is the whole picture of salvation, then you have a type of gospel minimalism that sees personal salvation as the full hope and doesn't really have any place for anything else. And I think this is why, I'm speaking as a pastor here, I think this is why so many people who come to this church from that kind of teaching have problems with assurance. It's because I, I know my sins are forgiven intellectually, propositionally, but that's the whole package, and I don't see anything beyond that. 
Whereas if we're understanding union with Christ, I think we see there's a lot more than that. Pardon and my place in God's eternal kingdom, as good as it is, is not the fullness of the gospel. The cross points us to some, something greater, a glory just over the horizon, a greater joy that transcends present sorrows, a glorious hope that is certain because Christ died and rose again. So let me finish with Hebrews chapter 12, and, um, and then this will be it. We'll, we'll stop here for tonight. Hebrews chapter 12. Let me read the first few verses with you. Hopefully brings kind of together many of the things we're talking about. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, talking about all of those who died by faith in chapter 11, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You are called to run this race with joy, with strength, with enthusiasm by looking at Jesus, by focusing on Jesus. And it's not to say that other, other ways of thinking about these ideas don't think about Jesus or exclude Jesus, but I hope that this is just one example of how a slightly different vantage point, taking a slightly different angle, can help emphasize the centrality of Jesus and the way in which this grace comes to us by means of our union with him. All right? Let's bow together and close in prayer. We'll see if there are any questions. Gracious God and Father, we're thankful for this time. We're thankful that uh, we could meet together. We're grateful for every occasion that we can come as brothers and sisters and open your word uh, and be taught by your spirit. We pray, O oh God, that you would continue to stretch our minds, open our hearts, increase our faith, deepen our hope, our joy in Christ. Bless us with peace and comfort through knowing Christ and his glorious victory on our behalf and all of the blessings that we receive by our union with him. Bless us as we return to our homes, grant us safety tonight and through the remainder of this week, and gather us once again on the Lord's Day, we pray. In Jesus' holy name, amen. amen.